This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. And welcome to A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Here's Scott, I'm Mia, and today we're looking at chapter 20 of A Game of Thrones, Eddard 4. Here is the chapter summary according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Immediately upon his arrival in King's Landing, Ned is summoned to a meeting of the small council to plan a tournament. Afterward, Littlefinger intercepts him and leads him to where Catelyn is hiding, where they plan their strategy for justice. Okay, uh, so today we're, we're doing an episode that I've been quite excited to get to, actually, which is talking about genre. Now, a lot of people have really strong feelings about um, what genre A Song of Ice and Fire falls into, and there are some really compelling arguments that can be made for it fitting into a range of genres. So today I'm going to talk through some of these arguments and, and how we see A Song of Ice and Fire fitting. Uh, But before we do that, we need to address what genre actually is. So, Scott, what does genre mean to you? Genre for me represents a sort of coalescing of narrative and or, you know, textual expectations. So, in other words, tropes and conventions. However, I also think that this understanding of genre can suggest that it is necessarily static or fixed as, um, as an identified category. Firstly, it is an identified category, meaning someone has observed its formation, labelled it, and tracked the various expectations that fall within it. So it's a knowledge construct. And you know how much we love to deconstruct those, especially in culture studies. Uh, Genres evolve over time and across contexts. So just like most attempts to settle boundaries and enforce them, it is kind of pointless to be too precise about such labels, Um, but also uh, in the act of identifying a genre explicitly, cultural production often turns its attention to genre as this knowledge construct and responds. So we get subgenres and the critical subversion of generic uh, expectations. Um, My go-to example for this is the relationship between classical westerns and revisionist westerns, whereas The former is very um, upbeat and positive about the pioneering spirit of the Western, and revisionist Westerns are very much not. They are bleak, violent, and highlight colonialism in its genocidal reality. And I think something uh, similar is happening here, as we'll get to, with high fantasy and uh, what Martin is expressly doing with this series. Um, so the the act of identifying a genre already and and inevitably begins the process of transforming itself into something else, uh, which I find kind of cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. So as you say, genre is a way of categorizing text, but it is also a category itself, uh, which is important to remember. So some of you might have heard of the term genre fiction um, as a category of books 
um, that are written specifically to fit within readily identifiable genres. So if you go into a bookstore and you buy a romance book, you kind of know generally what the book is going to do. Um, you know what you're going to get in terms of tone, narrative arc, even if you don't know anything about the plot of the story. Genre fiction is also primarily for entertainment and can reach a broad market of readers. And it might also be described as popular fiction. Um, and it's also thought of as separate from literary fiction, which is fiction that is defined primarily by its literary merit. Now, already we can see some issues here. Um, so even in these really, really broad categories of books, there are problems. Um, plenty of genre fiction has literary merit, whatever that means. So, for example, we can think of the Hugo Award, which is a prestigious award for um, science fiction and fantasy literature, uh, both of which as genres would be considered forms of genre fiction. And of course, as one would hope, literary fiction can also be entertainment. Uh, what a wild concept. <laughs> <laughs> genre and literary fiction are ultimately marketing terms, uh, but they do signal what cultural and social values we attach to particular works and also how we think about what texts can do and what they are doing. So to think about this, I'm going to turn to the work of John Frau, who is a cultural and literary theorist whose work I'm sure we will return to in future episodes. So Frau writes in his book, Genre, a very aptly named book, hmm. quote, Genre, we might say, is a set of conventional and highly organised constraints on the production and interpretation of meaning. In using the word constraint, I don't mean to say that genre is simply a restriction. Rather, its structuring effects are productive of meaning. They shape and guide in the way that a builder's form gives shape to a pour of concrete or a sculptor's mould shapes and gives structure to its materials. So long-time listeners of the podcast might see some similarities to um, some of the ideas we've talked about in relation to Foucault and discourse. And Frau does, in fact, explicitly think about genre much like Foucault thinks about discourse. Uh, so in describing Foucault's use of the term discourse, Frau writes that discourses are, quote, performative structures that shape the world in the very process of putting it into speech. So... Genre is descriptive, um, it is a way of categorising, but it is also prescriptive, or as we like to say, it is performative. When we say that texts sit in a particular genre, we're not simply grouping um, these texts together with other texts that seem to resemble them for the sake of convenience. This actual classification is a way of making meaning of text. So genre relies upon a reader's existing knowledge of, in the case of fiction, stories, while also instructing the reader in how to understand these stories and the text itself. And as you said before, Scott, genre isn't stable. Genres will change over time and in different cultural and social contexts. You also pointed out that subgenres exist, uh, which can eventually gain legitimacy over time. So one example that I thought of here was paranormal fiction. So paranormal fiction might sit under a whole range of different categories. It could sit under romance, it could sit under horror or fantasy, depending on what that story is doing. But if you walk into a bookstore, I guarantee you there's a paranormal section. <laughs> These days, it's its own thing. Um, so they're very much not stable concepts. Uh, genres do evolve according to the needs and expectations of the cultures and societies that use them. So knowing what we know about genre, 
what does this mean for A Song of Ice and Fire? So as I said, Song of Ice and Fire can sit in a whole range of genres and what genre we think of it as sitting within will instruct how we actually read the series and what meaning we make out of particular events, also what we expect the story to do, and it's also going to impact how we think about the books beyond the story. Uh, So for example, some people potentially might be or might feel more embarrassed to admit reading some genres more than others, or they might be more likely to pick up one genre of book over another. So Scott knows that I'm not someone who's likely to sit down and read or watch a Western, but I do enjoy space Westerns. (laughs) Um, So films like Star Wars, um, the Westworld TV show and the comic series Saga all kind of fit that uh, specific kind of genre. Genre will also impact what we will accept from a book or a story. Um, So I will very readily pick up uh, a high fantasy book that is about 800 pages long. Not a problem for me, but it took me seven years to pick up The Goldfinch because I'm like, that book is too long. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't seem right. And it was a great book, by the way. But um, I was like, nope, not going to read an 800 page book. And yet I'll read, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire or like, other fantasy books that each book is 800 pages and that's just one book in the series not a problem another thing that stories can do is change genre partway through um which will make particular points or plot points more or less acceptable so it's not always done well um but there are some famous examples of movies that kind of seem to pull it off um so movies like psycho which went from a crime thriller to a horror Um, Titanic, which starts as a kind of period romance, then becomes a full-on disaster film. So basically, yeah, genre can change over time. Um, You can feel like you're kind of in a different genre at different points in a story. And what genre you feel like you're in and what genre you understand yourself to be consuming will inform what you will accept from that story. So in this episode, I'm going to discuss some of the main genres that I think A Song of Ice and Fire can fit into. Um, and what those genres do in the series and why this matters. So, Scott, do you want to start? Uh, What are one of the genres that we might think of A Song of Ice and Fire as fitting within? Well, I kind of want to pick at this thread of the subgenre first, uh, particularly because it seems most relevant to the chapter in which this episode is based around as well. Um, And I also kind of want to dig into the idea of shifting genres because that very much does happen quite a few times in uh, A Song of Ice and Fire in many different ways. So I want to start off with murder mystery. But in saying that, I'm not saying this is one of the main genres for uh, this series. Obviously, (laughs) A Song of Ice and Fire is not a murder mystery. Um, But I'm kind of interested in looking a little closer at what maybe Martin's doing by significantly drawing on on these these genres in a sub-genre format. Um, And typically these tend to be confined either to one book or even one point of view. Uh, We have mentioned in the past uh, how Danny's story, especially in A Game of Thrones, can be read as a desert romance with all its orientalism. We have also mentioned horror already, particularly in the prologue, and although I like how the series does play with the horror genre in different ways, um, you mentioned that the hard shifts in genre, I really didn't like it in the show when it turned into zombie fiction. (laughs) 
uh, particularly of the Walking Dead <laughs> variety, which I've mentioned on this pod before, so we don't really need to dig into that. But that that's an example of one of those genre shifts just not working for me at all, um, even if it was just temporary for one episode. Um, but the one I did want to look at a little more de- in a little more depth here is the murder mystery. Uh, I, I think this is a good place uh, to start, given Eddard Four itself carries a lot of what we may expect from a story within this genre. And I think it bears influences from both Closed Circle, or you might know that as classical murder mysteries, as well as the more hard-boiled noir style. Um, you know, Ned's entry into the small council chambers reminds me a lot of Marlowe's arrival at General Sternwood's mansion in The Big Sleep. Uh, very similar cataloging vibe with all the luxurious foreign possessions and the implications of wealth and corruption and quite possibly racism and xenophobia, depending on which story you're reading. And, you know, even in this story, those isms certainly map onto Varys immediately after Ned's first impression of the setting. Um, you, you can definitely read Ned's reaction to Varys as perhaps informed by xenophobia. You know, and this is all received as a sign of corruption, both in Marlowe's point of view as well as Ned's uh, going forward. You know, we have the verbal jousting, which is another convention, especially in hard-boiled noir uh, murder mysteries you know the wit uh, of description and the banter and dialogue are very strong conventions in that and we certainly have that between Littlefinger and Ned um, as well as the really overt cynicism and world world weariness and the seedy settings we get our brothels and all that in King's Landing I mean King's Landing is a great sort of hard-boiled uh, cynical worldview um, hub as it were um, but the small council scene also feels like introducing a cast of closed circle suspects as well. You know, the closed, closed circle tends to have a setting where the doors are locked. Uh, anyone who could have possibly performed the murder is present. Um, and all these people that Ned's meeting, some more and some less, are considered suspects by Ned and or perhaps the reader. But what does it mean exactly to label a Game of Thrones, at least... Um, although I think later Theon and Danny's chapters also have very similar genre vibes, uh, particularly Marine for Danny and Winterfell for Theon um, when he's Reek. Um, they have elements of murder mystery. So what does it mean when we label uh, a book or part of the series that? If we can do that, and I don't think we should do it broadly for the entire series, uh, <laughs> there's not a very good story in the genre. <laughs> we do not find out who the murderer is in this book, uh, which is the most murder mystery of the lot. There's no revelations in this respect at all in the Game of Thrones. And, you know, arguably the eventual reveal is highly anticlimactic. <laughs> so there's no Hercule Poirot or Benoit Blanc moment. Uh, everyone should watch Knives Out. Great murder mystery. Um, but there's no sort of the, the t- detective sits everyone around and triumphantly identifies who did it kind of moment. Uh, kind of becomes an afterthought going forward. There's certainly no comeuppance for the villains uh, yet. So if anything, to label A Song of Ice and Fire as a murder mystery, even though that is the inciting incident and the genre conventions, particularly Ned's point of view, is playing playing with as the seeming protagonist of the first book, um, if anything, to label the series a murder mystery might position readers to feel like um, Ned's death is a hard genre turn uh, to something else uh, and potentially... Uh, result in dissatisfaction i mean i think that is a hard genre shift i think that's intentional but perhaps that is also why we shouldn't label a song of ice and fire in this way and so why why does martin do this actually 
is it just a rug pull or is Martin attempting something more meaningful in the genre play? And in my view, I think he is doing something deliberate. Not only uh, does the murder mystery provide a very useful way to set confined foundations for introducing this world and its cast, like I said, closed circle introduction of characters, setting and so forth. These actually help him set that vibe and introduce important characters. But I also think it kind of makes a declarative statement on what we can expect of justice in this world and in this story. And I think it bears kind of a strong relationship with high fantasy actually, in terms of having um, high fantasy tends to have clear delineations in good versus evil and good tri triumphing. Um, so I see that sort of hard genre, critical hard genre turn as part of that same project that Martin's attempting with his story here. Yeah, so let's talk about high fantasy as a genre. Um because that is kind of the most common um, genre category that A Song of Ice and Fire is placed within. Uh, certainly if you went to buy the series at a bookstore, it would be sitting with the other um, high fantasy books if it's a big enough bookstore to have its own high fantasy section. Um, and another way that we can think about high fantasy is the epic fantasy, uh, which, I mean, they're kind of used interchangeably, but Epic fantasy, I think, is probably the term that I'm going to use a little bit more here just because it, it's addressing a lineage that I think is a bit helpful to look at. So the question here is what makes fantasy epic as opposed to just fantasy? Um, so Brian Atterbury writes, conventional fiction takes a narrower view of its task to tell the story of an individual or a marriage or a career. It sometimes uses those individuals as filters through which to consider moments of historical change, a reform, a battle, a revolution. But an epic thinks globally. Its protagonist is the world. Even if it invites us to focus briefly on this personal interaction, that heroic effort, it keeps the big picture in front of us. So if we think back to a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the concept of place as character. And I think that's really central to... Um, the epicness of A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, George R. R. Martin has created two full continents <laughs> for his story. <laughs> um, he's got more than 30 POV characters, as in like characters who tell their own story from their own perspective in the series so far. So this is, it's a big story. Now, if we think about epics, epic fantasies as a, a, a genre, one of the kind of, I guess what we'd often think about as the father of this genre uh, what most people would conventionally think of as the father of this genre, certainly as we think about epic fantasy today, would be someone like Tolkien. It does have a much longer history, though, and it's also got a much broader history. Um, so if we think about old forms of storytelling, when I say old, ancient forms of storytelling, uh, we have the ancient epics. So we've got Virgil's Aeneid and Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. These stories share characteristics, including large worlds, um, stories that span several years, casts of fantastical characters. Um, and though we might get single heroes, so we have characters like Odysseus, Achilles, Aeneas, like these are heroes of these stories. The stories are much bigger than them and then also not the only characters that are important, uh, even if we might get some of these stories named after these particular characters 
the story is a lot more than just those characters. It's not about their point of view. And if, like I would say that, for example, in the Odyssey, Odysseus's point of view is kind of irrelevant. Things happen to Odysseus. That's what's happening. We don't care about what Odysseus thinks about it. Certainly, I don't think care about it. Penelope, maybe. Yeah, so and then if we think about a little bit later, we've got like the Arthurian legends would also kind of fit into this type of storytelling. And like a lot of the epics, um, these legends were created by many, many people and they were told and retold over and over again. And when they were retold, they were told in ways to emphasize different parts of the story. Um, So they're these very kind of like unweirdly kind of stories that have lots of branches going off and and lots of different components. The fantasy writer Michael Moorcock also links the development of the epic fantasy in its kind of more modern form to 18th century romantic and gothic literature. And these, of course, are just fitting a very specific lineage that's very kind of Eurocentric in its settings. We're going to talk a little bit about that later as well. Uh, But already we're seeing that even epic fantasy, as opposed to just fantasy, um, covers a lot of content and genre tropes, many of which we can see in A Song of Ice and Fire. So it is a broad category. um, And because of that breadth, it's probably the genre that will most uncontroversially apply to A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, you say most uncontroversially. That does not mean uncontroversially, because a lot of people do insist on A Song of Ice and Fire being categorized as a grimdark fantasy, uh, which is a particular subgenre. Um, that is, like I mentioned earlier, and alongside um, the Western revisionist Western dynamic, it's kind of has a very similar dynamic when it comes to high or epic fantasy. Um, I just want to say from the outset, I hate the term grimdark. That said, I'm probably more inclined to grimdark fantasy, uh, which we'll get into, but so long as it adheres to particular ways of interpreting the genre conventions, a lot of people say are part of this this sort of uh, sub-branch of fantasy so i did a tiny little research here because uh i had to but in saying that my research was limited to the wikipedia page so <laughs> <laughs> this is not academic research but it's just a quick sort of catch up on what's being said about this subgenre. Um, so common threads and explaining what grimdark fantasy is tends to highlight a penchant for ultra violence uh as well as what liz burke says the uh, violent for the sake of violence, um, flawed heroes, absence of honor or even amorality, nihilism, cynical and disillusioned characters or themes, critical or dark realism underpinning kingdom politics, um, a critique of, quote, idealized medieval Liana, end quote. Uh, thanks for that word, Adam Roberts. Uh, and Tolkien idealism, or even uh, ostensibly being anti-Tolkien. Um, and we, I think we can see a lot here uh, that overlaps with how uh, A Song of Ice and Fire is read and interpreted. I think that there's a lot there that is certainly true of A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, however, I would interrogate some of these claims about grimdark fantasy, um, particularly in relation to the series. I do think some of these genre expectations are laid out by individuals who seem to be critical of the genre in a negative sense. I'm pointing to nihilism, uh, the idea that it's violent for violence sake. Um, Certainly A Song of Ice and Fire is a very violent tale, and we can extend this to 
the high casualty count as well. And I guess the myth making around that amongst the fandom and beyond this particular understanding that don't get attached to anyone because they can die at any moment kind of deal. Now that tends to lean into an understanding that therefore these characters don't matter or their deaths don't matter or the violence doesn't matter. I would I would vehemently push against that. Um, I think the deaths of several characters do matter. And you know, if the story was meant to be as engrossing and engaging as it is, I don't think it can work if the deaths don't matter. Um, so I would push back against that particular understanding of the role of ultraviolence in, in this fantasy. Um, I would also question whether there is an absence of honor or more accurately the reign of nihilism in this. I don't think you can say that at all. There are certainly characters who lack honor. <laughs> a lot of characters <laughs> lack honor. And honor as a theme, as a value, as an institution or how it's you know embedded in institutions is certainly critiqued and explored. Uh, but I don't think characters like the Hound or Jamie Lannister represent the truth of honor in the series. I think we see plenty of examples of honor persisting. Um, and again, I don't think you can say A Song of Ice and Fire is nihilistic uh, in, the, in the sense that nothing matters. Nothing, nothing you do matters kind of deal. Um, I think it certainly highlights that it's difficult, um, but I don't think the ultimate theme of, you know, Fighting for honor, fighting for good, fighting for justice is pointless. So another subgenre of the epic fantasy that um, A Song of Ice and Fire is often put into, and it's one that we've discussed, I believe, on the podcast as well uh, in the past, is the political fantasy. Uh, now, I do tend to think about A Song of Ice and Fire primarily as a political fantasy. Um, political fantasies as a, a subgenre focus on political st- struggle and intrigue so while these stories might have things like dragons and magic and other fantasy elements it's the political struggle that actually moves the story forward uh, not the dragon that moves the story forward so there are other books that we can also kind of argue fit this so something like frank herbert's dune does fit this category even though it's actually not fantasy it's more sci-fi if we think about from a trope perspective um but they're very much doing the same kind of things, these two different stories. It, it's all about the politicking that is the main thrust, essentially, of the story. So again, if we think about the performative nature of genre, when we describe A Song of Ice and Fire as a political fantasy as opposed to an epic fantasy, we're making claims about what the story is doing. And it also is essentially setting the foundation for us to decide whether or not our expectations are met. Because if you're someone who really loves a kind of swords and sorcery style story, you love the idea of, you know, magic and wizards and dragons and all that kind of stuff and fairies. And you might go into A Song of Ice and Fire and and be left dissatisfied. It might not be something that's actually going to meet that for you. And again, with Game of Thrones, the show, I know people who have been like, well, I don't actually like fantasy as a genre, but I really liked Game of Thrones. And I think, it is funny because people talk about the dragons a lot, but I think like it would be, it would feel like a, a different show in terms of like from a um, imagery perspective if it didn't have dragons, but from an actual story perspective, I don't think the story would feel that different if it was something else, not dragons. I, I don't think the dragons are the the fundamental important thing about this story. And again, uh, earlier I, I kind of mentioned that 
um, genre will impact like the kinds of books that you might pick up or the kinds of shows or movies that you might put on to watch and I think also this is again where you really see it clearly because there are people I could convince to read A Song of Ice and Fire on the grounds that it is political fantasy that if I was just like oh yeah it's an epic fantasy they'd be like "Mm, no thanks (laughs) not really interested in that (laughs) um so yeah it, it does do something it informs how we approach a story it's kind of interesting how political fantasy as a genre label is perhaps the more emphasized of the subgenres of fantasy when it comes to Song of Ice and Fire, because I think that is actually a product of the way in which Martin is setting up the magical plot in the series, because we have it on the fringes. You know, it bookends this book that we're reading right now and largely isn't present throughout the middle of it. It becomes increasingly more present as we go forward with shadow babies and dragons and uh, faceless men and so forth and I, I think you will find that the last few books will be very centrally magical so in a way um, this describing it as more political fantasy is actually kind of intentional and ultimately might actually come into tension with what the story probably is meant to be going forward um, and, and it's interesting how you highlight the potential for dissatisfaction here because I I do think you know magic is not going to be a fringe thing going forward. There is going to be a direct confrontation with magic. Um, so in a way, these two subgenres are being brought together in quite an interesting and compelling way. Um, but again, we haven't really got the books necessary to really see how that plays out. All right. So the last. Um subgenre I guess and even this like calling this a genre is a little bit contestable but that I want to talk about in this episode is the neo-medievalist fantasy. Now this is another more specific subgenre and I think it is important to draw attention to this here. Um, So when we think about the setting of A Song of Ice and Fire it is clearly loosely resembling uh, a medieval setting uh, and a European medieval setting. So this is very very common in fantasy but it's not the defining feature of fantasy um so harry potter elsa's adventures in wonderland these are clearly fantasy books they're not set in medieval settings um so something doesn't need to feel sort of pseudo medieval in order to be fantasy we will talk a lot more about neo-medievalism in the future and the reason for this is there is a lot to unpack with this uh we're going to need at least a full episode to dedicate to that But it is really important to acknowledge it here because the political dimensions of having a fictional setting resemble a real world historical setting, particularly when the setting is often seen as a default for books in that particular genre, in the epic fantasy genre. Um, So what what does it mean to have so many epic fantasy authors, and it is so many Mm -hmm. epic fantasy authors, choose a pseudo medieval Europe as the setting of their stories? And of course, when we talk about genre and we talk about this idea of default, a lot of authors wouldn't be consciously thinking, all right, what is the setting I want? Yep, I really like this particular point of history in these groups of countries. That's what I really love. That's what I'm doing. It's more that that's the books that they read and therefore they're going to recreate the kind of feeling that was captured in those books. But it is still, as we always say, even if the choice is unconscious, it still does have meaning. Um... And I think in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's particularly interesting to think about because so many fans of A Song of Ice and Fire are really invested in the authenticity, in big scare quotes, of the medieval setting. 
so we're going to park that because it is something that I really uh, kind of need a, a decent amount of time to unpack. But it is important to bring up here because that is very much uh, uh, a very present part of the genre of A Song of Ice and Fire. What does it mean to have so many epic fantasy authors choose a pseudo-medieval Europe as the setting of their stories? It means the normative basis of Eurocentrism. That's what it means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, this assumed centre of the world for Europe and its history. Um, th this is interesting. As a, as a genre, uh, particularly a fantasy uh, sub-branch of the fantasy genre, this is something I haven't had a lot of encounters with. Um, but it does strike me, particularly in the way in which you highlight the expectations of authenticity and wh whatever the hell that might actually mean to a fandom, it does remind me of particular approaches to historical fiction. And, and we know uh, Martin draws on a lot of historical fiction um, as influences, Bernard Cornwell and all that. Um, so it's quite interesting to think about how that's navigated and what in particular um, fans cling to as signs of authenticity and legitimacy uh, and just how much they're willing to whistle past in the story about eyes of zombies and dragons, you know, that ultimately um, the fixation on authenticity in this sense is highly <laughs> constrained and very much uh, willfully looking past other aspects of the text. So I think we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll be back soon for chapter 21, Tyrion 3. If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tropewatchers. Pledges start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs. If you don't have cash to spare, you can also support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Or send us to a friend who you think would enjoy the podcast. If you're a fan of The Clash of Critics, be sure to tune in to our flagship podcast, Trope Watchers, the podcast about pop culture and why it matters. Our website is tropewatchers.com slash A Clash of Critics. We are on social media at A Clash of Critics, and you can email us at A Clash of Critics at gmail.com. See you next time.